As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello again, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. How are you all doing out there? I hope you're all hanging in there. I know it's been a rough month for humanity. I'm sure we're all feeling scared at times, occasionally lonely, frustrated with the current situation. But hey, if we're going to be scared, at least we all get to be scared together. I think it makes it a little easier to deal with these unpleasant emotions, knowing that we're all in the same boat. I also think that the listeners of Plane Crash Podcast are tough cookies. I'm sure you're all washing your hands, staying at home, taking care of yourselves and your loved ones. Every generation has to face a challenge, and unfortunately, this one's ours. Hopefully, soon enough, we'll be back out in the world, socializing and visiting with friends. But for right now, keep on hanging on in there like the trooper you are, and be grateful for the good things in your life. This is episode 19 of PCPC. And for episode 19, we're going to be taking a look at Delta Airlines Flight 191, a scheduled flight from Fort Lauderdale International in Florida to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport in Texas on the evening of August 2nd, 1985. Thanks to all our new Patreon members. It was so cool to see people sign up this past week. Thank you guys a ton. We really appreciate your support. Patreon members, you keep the PCPC episodes churning out. If you have a moment and you haven't done so yet, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Tess also made an official PCPC website at www.planecrashpod.com with official PCPC merch, and all the episodes are listed there as well. We've had some people tell us that there's uh, fake PCPC merch floating around the internet, so just make sure you're buying the official stuff, yeah, people. Yeah, you don't, you don't want any of that cheap knockoff stuff. So if you have a second, check out our new websites. On episode 19 of PCPC, as you just heard, we are blessed to have someone that exudes calming energy in times of crisis, an all-around thoughtful and considerate human being. Please welcome to the podcast, Miss Tessa Andrade. Hello, everybody. Thank you for that wonderful welcome, Michael. No problem. How are you doing? How are you holding up during this difficult time? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just trying to keep a good head on my shoulders. Yeah, you have a good head on your shoulders. Have you uh, engaged in any projects to help pull your mind away from what's going on in the world? 
Yeah, I've done a few things. I've been watching a lot of movies. I've been trying to plant some herbs. I've been taking a couple online courses. Nice. It's been pretty productive, I that would say. That sounds good. I've been, uh, I watched the Godfather movies, all three Godfather movies. I've been learning German, researching plane crashes, and I'm also writing some new music. Oh, that's great. Sounds like you're having a very creatively fertile time. I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the year, uh, a couple episodes ago, that we had a really good feeling about 2020. Tess, what do you think? Do we really nail that one? Yeah. So I did sort of go on the record saying, you know, famously that 2020 would be our best year yet. I do want to sort of rescind that um, just because, you know, from what we've seen, that doesn't seem to be panning out. Not yet. Um, There's a lot of the year left. That's true. We have we still have some time to redeem ourselves. But um, to anyone I hurt with that prediction, I am sorry. I think that... There's always a silver lining in horrible things that happen in the world. I'm just trying to find some sort of positive thing to see. And I feel like this might give a rise to self-sufficiency. You know, I feel like I've been really cognizant of how much I use, how much paper towels I use, how much toilet paper I use. I think uh, you're going to see a real surgence in reusable goods. Also, as you said, it makes me want to you know, plant a garden. So I'm not as dependent on other stores for things. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people are finding themselves inspired to try and make things at home. And, um, I know we've talked about potentially making bread and mm -hmm. different things like that. Um, some of the, the luxuries that we are used to going out and buying, we now have to kind of recreate for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, this will create a mental shift in the world and, Maybe there will be some good things that come out of it. I hope you're all just keeping the faith and being brave and taking care of yourselves and others. Well, Tess, the coronavirus outbreak of 2020 is hitting the commercial airline business hard. Delta Airlines has canceled 70% of its flights for April and May and is in the process of taking over 600 planes out of service from its fleet. American Airlines has canceled 55,000 flights in April and is also moving half of its fleet to storage. American Airlines President Robert Isom said in a statement, This is a crisis unlike any we've faced in the past. Together, we will continue to be aggressive on all fronts so that we can ensure Americans' future is intact. We are in the fight of our lives and we will win. Now is the time to come together and rally against a common enemy. American Airlines put a freeze on new hires and salaries. They've also suspended new flight attendant training classes. Both Delta and United Airlines have been moving their larger, wide-bodied aircraft to Pinal Air Park in Arizona for storage. Apparently, the dry desert air is thought to be better for preserving the longevity of airplanes, protecting them against rusting. Southwest Airlines has slashed 25% of its flights and cut all international flights as well. Southwest typically flies 46 international flights a day, 81 international flights on Sundays, and all those flights aren't going to be taking place anymore. JetBlue is cutting flights by 40% in April and May. In a letter to employees, the company explained that revenue has dropped from $22 million a day in March of 2019 to $4 million a day in March 2020. That $4 million figure is way below their daily expenses. So, Tess, airlines are losing a lot of money. Um, it seems like all those planes that used to be full of passengers that were about to go spend money on vacations or work conferences, they're no longer flying through the sky. It's a chaotic time for many industries, but the airline industry is being pounded. Just last night, a bailout was announced by the U.S. government to the tune of $58 million for the entire airline industry. There are a few stipulations to receive the aid. Airlines can't lay off employees, and they must continue to service all airports that they are currently servicing. So essentially, the government is saying, we'll step in and take care of your payroll costs. What do you think about this? Do you think the airlines need help through these harsh financial times, or should they ride out the storm alone after a decade of making billions of dollars a year? I don't know, Michael. I mean, I I don't really understand the nuances of all of this fully, but I can definitely think of some people out there who might need more help than the airline industry. What do you think, though? I feel like my brain is split in two. Part of me says, this is capitalism. You guys are a big business. Um, you have a decade of making billions of dollars a year. You should save money when you are making money for those years that you know something's going to go wrong and you're going to lose money. So part of my mind is in that camp. And the other part of my mind is 
Guess what? These airlines aren't just shadowy billionaires in some dark room. The airlines are hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens that need jobs. And by giving the airlines money, these people get money to pay their bills. So I am kind of on the fence. I think uh, one thing that I kind of wish would have happened was that the government would have said, hey, if we're going to give you $60 billion, we should, the American people should get a percentage of your biz. You know, we should be a percentage owner of your airline. And maybe in the future, you can buy that percentage off of us, but you don't get that money for free. Mm, that's a good point. Hopefully in a couple months or a year, we'll get past this historic moment in human history and the demand will come back. We'll all be going back on vacations and traveling for work. But for right now, we all just need to ride out the storm together. Hopefully any laid off workers will get unemployment and these layoffs should be temporary too. I imagine once things settle down on the virus front, people will be eager to get out of their homes and get back to uh, traveling again. I know I will be. Tesla, let's say something miraculous happened where there was a two-week pause in coronavirus outbreak and everybody could go out into the world safely for uh, two weeks. Where would you like to go? I think I would go straight to Boston where my mom lives. I would go and say hi to her and give her a hug. Yeah, we should all go see our families when it's safe. Everybody could use a hug, some close contact. I miss close contact. I do as well. Well, Tess, do you know what right now is a great time for? What, Michael? It's a great time to try out BetterHelp. <gasps> You're right. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's 21st century therapy. You can communicate with a certified counselor from the comfort of your own home. And guess what? We can't leave to go anywhere right now, so it's the perfect time to get an online therapist. You can speak with your therapist over the phone or via video chat. You can message them 24 hours a day. If you're stressed out about the state of the world and need an intelligent, qualified, objective therapist to talk to, BetterHelp can help you. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod, you get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again to BetterHelp. Thanks, BetterHelp. And I got to say, I have been talking to my therapist every week over video conference, and it has done a world of wonders for my mental health. That's good. I like to mention at the top of every podcast that I'm not an aviation expert by any means. I'm not even a pilot. This podcast was born out of a desire to confront my anxiety surrounding flying. I've always been a nervous passenger on planes. I see my fellow passengers reading books and playing games on tablets, and I'm always gripping the armrest like I'm about to have this near-death experience. I figured the more I learned about crashes from the past, the more I'd absorb information about how these crashes from the past led to safety changes, which ultimately made the current day air travel system as safe as it is. We realize that each tragedy we discuss involves real human beings with family members and friends and neighbors. We in no way want to be disrespectful or insensitive to that fact. We just think discussing why these crashes occurred and what changes they brought about is an important discussion to have. You ready to get started on Flight 191, Tess? Oh, I'm ready. Delta Airlines Flight 191 was a scheduled flight from Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport in Florida to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport in Texas on the evening of August 2nd, 1985. Flight 191 was to continue on to Los Angeles later that night after first stopping at Dallas-Fort Worth. The plane was a Lockheed L-1011-385-1 TriStar. If you recall from our previous episodes, this was the same type of plane as Eastern Airlines Flight 401, the flight that crashed into the Everglades in late December 1972. The L-1011 had three engines, one engine under each wing, and a third engine located in the rear fuselage. Lockheed Corporation produced the L-1011 aircraft out of their factory located in Palmdale, California from 1968 to 1984. 250 L-1011s would be produced over that 16-year period. Lockheed delivered the plane used for Flight 191 to Delta Airlines on February 28, 1978. So the plane was around seven and a half years old at the time of the incident. The plane had 20,555 flight hours over its time in service with Delta Airlines. The captain of Flight 191 was 57-year-old Captain Edward Connors. Born in Massachusetts in 1928, Captain Connors was hired by Delta Airlines on June 14, 1954. So at the time of the incident, he had been with the airline for over 31 years. He was qualified as a captain in the L-1011 since October 1979. 
Captain Connor's co-workers called him a professional pilot that was very capable and meticulous about adhering to company procedures. He explained his thoughts about airplane operation to his flight crew and willingly accepted suggestions. He made prompt decisions. Captain Connors had 29,300 total flight hours and roughly 3,000 hours flying L-1011s. The first officer of Flight 191 was First Officer Rudolph Price Jr., Known to his colleagues as Rudy, First Officer Price was hired by Delta Airlines on February 13, 1970. He was described by his colleagues as an above-average First Officer with extensive knowledge of the L-1011 TriStar. For two years in the late 1970s, he helped revise the L-1011's pilot operating manual for Delta Airlines with ground school instructors. First Officer Rudy Price had 6,500 flight hours, 1,200 on L-1011s. The flight engineer for Flight 191 was flight engineer Nick Nasik. He was 43 years old at the time of the incident. Flight engineer Nasik was hired by Delta Airlines on October 19, 1976. He was described by colleagues as alert, observant, and professional. He monitored the operation of the airplane and called attention to the items that he thought required it. Flight engineer Nasik had 6,500 flight hours, 4,500 on L-1011s. There were eight flight attendants on board and 152 passengers. Adding the three men in the cockpit, there were a total of 163 human beings on Flight 191. The plane had a passenger capacity of 246, but luckily Flight 191 was not a full flight. So while the cockpit crew is preparing for their flight, they look over the dispatch document package, which contains a weather report for DFW that night. The weather report states that there's the possibility of widely scattered rain showers and thunderstorms becoming isolated after 8 p.m. Central Time. In the package, there's also a company alert that states an area of isolated thunderstorms is expected over Oklahoma and northern and northeastern Texas, a few isolated tops to above flight level 450. The flight was scheduled to be a little over three and a half hours long. At 3.10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Delta Airlines Flight 191 takes off from Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport en route to Dallas-Fort Worth. It's a pretty run-of-the-mill flight for the first few hours. Flight 191 is making its trek along the Gulf Coast. As the plane flies above New Orleans, Louisiana, the pilots notice a developing line of thunderstorms along the Texas-Louisiana coastline. Due to this severe weather, the pilots of Flight 191 want to alter their route. Instead of flying a more direct route to DFW, continuing to head west and then approaching the airport from the south, the flight crew decides they're going to change their flight path above New Orleans. They decide to fly north, eventually approaching DFW from the northern arrival route called Blue Ridge, instead of the southern arrival route called Scurry. Because they altered their route, this required Flight 191 to fly a holding pattern above the town of Texarkana, Arkansas, for about 10 to 15 minutes. It's now around 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, three hours and 20 minutes into the flight, and Flight 191's flying this holding pattern to the northeast of DFW, waiting to get its approval to approach the airport. It's a Friday evening. Many passengers are traveling for the weekend, and there's a lot of air traffic in the sky surrounding DFW. Unfortunately, in addition to the heavy air traffic, heavy thunderstorms are developing in the area. At 5.35 p.m., there's a discussion going on in the cockpit about their layover time at DFW and how they won't have a lot of time to get to their next flight. Flight engineer Nick Nasik receives the current ATIS, or Automatic Terminal Information Service, which states, Listen, DFW arrival information, Romeo, 2174 Greenwich. Weather 6,000 scattered, 21,000 scattered, visibility 1-0, temperature 101, dew 0.67, wind calm, altimeter 2992, runway 18 right, 17 left, visual approaches in progress, advise approach control that you have Romeo. Just to put more emphasis on it, it's 101 degrees at DFW, a hot, humid day in early August, perfect weather for developing thunderstorms. A few seconds after receiving this report, Fort Worth Air Traffic Control radios over, Delta 191, clear direct Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge 9 arrival, descend and maintain flight level 250. Captain Connors radios back, okay, Delta 191, direct Blue Ridge, cleared Blue Ridge arrival, we're out of 29 for 250. 
For the next seven minutes, the pilots in the cockpit talk about the different features on the L-1011 versus the Boeing 767 and 757. The pilots agree that they like the L-1011's control wheel steering autopilot feature, but on the Boeing 767, they like the large amount of space in the cockpit. In regards to the Boeing 767, Captain Connor says, I hope I never have to fly it, and First Officer Price teases, well, you shouldn't have to, you'd get spoiled if you did. The pilots listen in as another flight, Delta Flight 963, communicates with air traffic control and requests to change their route because of a thunderstorm cell. Delta 963 wants to go to the south, but the air traffic controller tells them there's too many planes already lined up in the south and that Delta 963 needs to maintain its current heading and they'll get instructions to turn before they hit any weather. On flight 191, First Officer Price says, it would be nice if we could deviate to the south. And Captain Connors replies, somebody just ahead of us tried to and they wouldn't let them do it. They're working a 12-mile corridor. The airplanes that have been going through there have been all right. At 5.43 p.m., air traffic control radios over telling Flight 191 to descend to 10,000 feet and to fly a heading of 250 to join the Blue Ridge arrival route. Captain Connors replies to the air traffic control, well, I'm looking at a cell at about a heading of a 255, and it's a pretty good-sized cell. I'd rather not go through it. Rather go around it one way or the other. Air traffic control replies, I can't take you south. I got a line of departures to the south. I've had about 60 aircraft go through this area out here, 10 to 12 miles wide. They're getting a good ride, no problems. Captain Connors responds, Well, I see a cell now about heading 240. Air traffic control finally gets the message that Captain Collins isn't comfortable with the heading Flight 191 was on. So air traffic control gives Flight 191 a new heading and says, when I can, I'll turn you into Blue Ridge. It'll be about the 010 radial. Captain Connor says, put the girls down, meaning he wants the flight attendants to take their seats, and Flight 191 starts descending towards 10,000 feet. Three minutes later at 5.46 p.m., Captain Connors asks for clearance for Blue Ridge and air traffic control radios over. Delta 191, you can proceed direct to Blue Ridge now and the Blue Ridge 9 arrival. Cross Batten at and maintain 9 or 1,000. Captain Connors acknowledges the clearance back to air traffic control. He comments as an aside to his first officer and flight engineer, he's sleeping, get him out of bed, in reference to the fact that he had to contact the air traffic controller instead of the controller contacting him. And Flight 191 starts down the Blue Ridge arrival route. For the next few minutes, the pilots are doing a series of checks. Flight engineer Nasik says warning panel, altimeters, shoulder harness, landing lights, and Captain Connor says check after each. The air traffic controller is dealing with more planes that need new headings because of the thunderstorms in the area. And Captain Connor's comments in regards to the air traffic controller, getting kind of hot in the oven with his controller. See, that's what the lack of experience does. At 5.49 p.m., Captain Connor says to his first officer, you're in good shape. I'm glad we didn't have to go through that mess. I thought for sure he was going to send us through it. Two minutes later, flight engineer Nisik comments, Looks like it's raining over Fort Worth. And First Officer Price says, yeah. Half a minute passes and air traffic control radios over to Flight 191 to change their frequency to communicate with approach control at DFW. Ever the professional, Captain Connors acknowledges the message and says, you all have a nice evening. We appreciate the help. After changing frequencies, Captain Connors radios over to approach control. Regional approach, Delta 191 heavy, going through 11 with Romeo. Approach control radios back, Delta 191 heavy, fly heading 235, descend to 7,000. Captain Connors replies, Delta 191 out of 9 for 7. At 5.56 p.m., the pilots in the cockpit of Flight 191 are starting their approach check. Approach control tells Flight 191 to slow their speed to 180 knots, and once they do slow their speed to descend to 5,000 feet, nine seconds later, approach control sends out a message, Attention, all aircraft listening. There's a little rain shower just north of the airport, and they're starting to make ILS, instrument landing system approaches. Tune up 1091 for 17 left. Two minutes later at 5.58 p.m., Captain Connors radios over. Delta 191, we'd like to go around this build-up 12 o'clock to us. Can we turn left a little bit and go around the other side of it? Approach control responds, 191, 20 left or so is approved. Call approach 125.8. Delta 191 heavy, turn left heading 190, and I'll turn you back on downwind in just a second. 
A minute later at 5.59 p.m., First Officer Price says, we're going to get our airplane washed, to which Captain Connor says, what? And First Officer Price repeats, we're going to get our airplane washed. Apparently ahead of their path, out the cockpit window, the pilots can see rainfall. Captain Connor's radio is over. Approach, Delta 191 with you at 5. Approach arrival radio is back. 191 heavy, expect 17 left. He's telling Flight 191 that they're going to be landing on runway 17 left. So Flight 191 is third in line to land at DFW on runway 17 left. At the front of the line is American Airlines Flight 351. Second in line is a Learjet 25. Third in line is our flight, Delta 191. And behind Flight 191 is another American Airlines flight. Fourth in line, American Flight 539. At 6 p.m. on the button... Approach control radios over to American 351, the first plane in line to land. American 351, do you see the airport yet? American 351 responds, as soon as we break out of this rain shower, we will. So we know already that ahead of Flight 191 is a rain shower that's intense enough to obstruct the view of the runway. But American Flight 351 is continuing with its approach, headed to land on runway 17 left. Approach control then reaches out to Flight 191 and tells them to slow their speed to 170 knots. Flight 191 is behind the Learjet, and the controller is trying to slow down Flight 191, keeping a good distance between the planes so everyone has enough time and space to land safely. Approach control then radios over to the Learjet, the plane that's second in line. 5 Juliet Foxtrot, increase your speed 170 knots, hold to that marker. You're five miles from the marker. Join the localizer at or above 3,000. Clear for an ILS-17 left approach. So the controller is telling the Learjet to speed up. He's trying to keep a safe distance between Flight 191 and the Learjet. At 6.01 p.m., approach control radios over. Delta-191 heavy. Turn left to 240. Descend to maintain 3,000. Captain Connors responds, 191-240, out of five for three. Over the next minute, approach control guides American Flight 539, the plane behind Flight 191, down to 5,000 feet on its approach. Approach also gives the Learjet in front of 191 the frequency to the tower at DFW and tells them to maintain 170 knots. At 6.02 p.m., approach control radios over to American Flight 539, the plane behind Flight 191, tells them to slow their speed to 170 knots and cautions them about the wake turbulence from the heavy TriStar in front of them. Approach control then radios over to our flight, Delta 191 heavy, six miles from the marker, turn left heading 180, join the localizer at or above 2300, cleared for an ILS 17 left approach. Captain Connors replies, Delta 191, roger all that, appreciate it. A minute later at 6.03 p.m., approach control radios over. Delta 191 heavy, reduce your speed to 160 over. And Captain Connors radios back, be glad to. Captain Connors says to his flight crew, localizer and glide slope captured. 25 seconds later, approach control radios out, and we're getting some variable winds out there due to a shower on short out there, north end of DFW. In the cockpit of Flight 191, one of the pilots says, stuff is moving in. Approach radios, Delta 191 Heavy, reduce speed to 150, contact tower 12655. So the controller is slowing flight 191 to 150 knots and gives them the frequency to communicate with the tower control at DFW. Captain Connors radios back, 12655, you have a nice day, we appreciate the help. 10 seconds later, Captain Connors radios over to the tower at DFW, tower Delta 191 Heavy out here in the rain, feels good. The tower replies, Delta 191 heavy, regional tower, 17 left, clear to land, wind 090 at 5, gust 1 to 5. Captain Connor says, thank you, sir. The time is now 6.04 p.m. The crew of Flight 191 is going through their before landing check. Flight engineer Nasik calls out landing gear. Captain Collins says, down, 3 green. Flight engineer Nasik continues, flaps, slats. Captain Connor says, 33, 33, green light. The first plane in the line of four planes, American Flight 351, lands safely on runway 17 left. Now Flight 191 only has one plane in front of them, the Learjet 25. At 6.04 p.m., First Officer Price looks out his window and notices lightning coming out of a dark cloud in front of them. First Officer Price says, lightning coming out of that one. 
Captain Connor says, what? First Officer Price says again, lightning coming out of that one. Captain Connors asks, where? First Officer Price says, right ahead of us. Flight Engineer Nasik says, you get good legs, don't ya? At 6.05 p.m., the controller at DFW Tower is directing the recently landed flight American 351 on where to taxi. On flight 191, Captain Connors announces, 1,000 feet, 672 in the Barrow, I'll call him out for you. Suddenly, the plane's airspeed increases over the course of 14 seconds from 150 knots to 173 knots. The nose of the plane is pushed upwards, and Captain Connor says, Watch your speed. Loud rain is heard hitting against the windshield of the cockpit. To combat the increase in airspeed and lift that Flight 191 was suddenly experiencing, First Officer Price brings back the throttles close to idle to try and maintain his target airspeed of 150 knots. First Officer Price also pushes forward on his control column to try and reduce the 4-degree pitch attitude the plane was now in and stay inside the glide slope. Captain Connors tells his first officer, you're going to lose it all of a sudden. There it is. Now, as quick as Flight 191 was gaining airspeed, it's suddenly losing airspeed. Flight 191's airspeed goes from 173 knots to 129 knots in 10 seconds. The plane drops in altitude, and Captain Connor says, push it up, push it way up, way up, way up. That's it. First Officer Price pushes the throttles forward to gain airspeed, and the plane goes from 129 knots to 147 knots. First Officer Price brings the throttles back again, and the plane's airspeed drops to 140 knots. For a few seconds, Flight 191 is stabilized on the glide slope, still surrounded by heavy rain at an altitude of 600 feet. At this moment, the flight crew might have thought that the worst was behind them. But out of nowhere, the plane is pummeled by wind from all directions. A lateral wind slams the left side of the plane, causing the plane to roll to the right, and First Officer Price twists his control column with all his might to try and level out the plane. Captain Connor screams, Hang on to the son of a bitch! The plane's airspeed drops to 120 knots, and the plane's angle of attack went from 6 degrees to 23 degrees. The stick shaker is activated, and Flight 191's on the verge of stalling. First Officer Price pushes up the throttles and pushes forward on his control column to counter the nose-up position of the plane. But Flight 191, having lost its lift, is now rapidly falling towards the Earth at a rate of 3,000 feet per minute. The ground proximity warning is heard in the cockpit. Whoop, whoop, pull up. Captain Connor says, Toga, calling for takeoff go-around power. Whoop, whoop, pull up is heard again. Captain Connor says, push it way up. Whoop, whoop, pull up. Flight 191 is now plummeting towards the ground at a rate of 5,000 feet per minute. Delta Airlines Flight 191 touches down on its landing gear in an open field, a little over one mile north of runway 17 left. A passenger described the bumpy landing as if being in a car that was on a railroad track, running over railroad ties. Just ahead of where the plane touches down is Texas State Highway 114. Flight 191 emerges from the rain shaft and is briefly airborne again before the left engine of the L-1011 slams into a 1971 Toyota Celica on Highway 114, instantly killing the car's 28-year-old driver. Flight 191 cuts down several light posts alongside the highway, and suddenly the left side of the plane catches fire where the left wing meets the fuselage. One passenger said it was like a blowtorch had been unleashed inside the left side of the passenger cabin. After crossing the highway, the plane veered to the left, shedding pieces of its horizontal stabilizer and engines, then touching down again on the ground briefly before slamming into two massive water tanks at 150 miles an hour, initially grazing the left water tank with the left wing and cockpit before slamming more directly into the second water tank located to the right. The plane exploded in flames as the tail section broke off from the rest of the fuselage and skidded backwards before coming to a rest near a cargo plane parking lot. Outside of the tail section, due to the force of the crash, the rest of the plane disintegrated and was consumed by flames. Seven million gallons of water from the water tanks spilled all over the field and wreckage. Within two minutes of the crash, three fire trucks were at the scene assisting with the rescue effort and putting out the fire. The fire was under control within ten minutes of the crash taking place. Again, the tail section was spared, but the rest of the plane, from the nose to row 34, was destroyed just scattered debris that was on fire. Flight 191 had 27 survivors. Most of the survivors were located in the smoking section in the rear of the plane. Two dogs were found in the cargo hold that survived. 
Three flight attendants and the flight crew also survived the crash. 136 of the 163 human beings on Flight 191 died that Friday evening on August 2nd, 1985. Two of the survivors died weeks after the accident due to injuries sustained on the crash of Flight 191. So now we have to ask, what exactly happened to Flight 191? We know the plane flew into bad weather on approach, and eventually the plane stalled. But don't planes fly into clouds and rain all the time and not have major issues? How did two other planes only a minute and two minutes ahead of Flight 191 fly the same route and land safely? Why didn't Flight 191 get a warning in the cockpit about the dangerous conditions ahead? Initially, investigators thought that maybe Flight 191 had some sort of mechanical issue. Maybe there's something wrong with the plane that caused it to fall out of the sky and caused the pilots to lose control. They also entertained the idea that the plane was struck by lightning, or even that a tornado took the plane down. Once investigators got to take a look at the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, they were able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Investigators discovered that Flight 191 had flown into a microburst. What is a microburst? A microburst is a downdraft in a thunderstorm that is less than two and a half miles in scale. When hot air rises from the ground, as it did on that 101 degree hot Friday afternoon in August 1985, the hot air rises and meets the cool air of a thunderstorm. When the hot air meets the cool air, the air rushes back down to earth causing a microburst. It's an extremely powerful downward gust of air, and once this downward gust of air hits the ground, it spreads out in all directions. It's very dangerous to planes that are taking off and landing because it disrupts the flow of air over an airplane's wings, which airplanes need to sustain lift and fly through the sky. When planes are taking off or landing, they're very close to the ground, and if a powerful microburst occurs and a plane unknowingly flies into it, suddenly that plane can lose its lift, stall, and have very little time or altitude to recover from that stall. One analogy I read when I was researching this is to imagine a garden hose. Imagine water streaming out of a garden hose that is pointed downward at a sidewalk. The water flows straight down, and when the water impacts the concrete, the water splashes outward in all directions. Well, that's somewhat similar to how downward air in a microburst reacts when it flows down from a thunderstorm cloud and impacts the ground. In regards to Flight 191, this microburst formed very quickly. Two minutes ahead of Delta 191 was American Flight 351, and the captain of that flight didn't experience any kind of microburst, just heavy rain. The plane one minute ahead of Delta 191 was the Learjet 25. Again, the Learjet just experienced heavy rain, no microburst conditions. This means in the course of 60 seconds, a powerful microburst quickly formed just north of runway 17 left at DFW, just as Delta 191 was about to fly through that area. As Delta 191 first enters the microburst at 6.05 p.m., right as Captain Connors says, a thousand feet, 762 in the barrow, I'll call him out for you. The plane encountered a headwind that increased at a rate of 2.7 knots per second. The strong headwind caused the plane's speed to jump from 150 knots to 173 knots over the course of just 14 seconds. So this is phase one of dealing with the microburst for Flight 191. Their airspeed jumps because of a strong headwind, and First Officer Price pulls back the throttles to idle because his approach airspeed at the time was 150 knots. He's thinking to himself, I'm going too fast, I need to slow down. Next, Flight 191's in the middle of the microburst, and the headwind decreases and a strong downdraft occurs and increases. These differences in wind speed and direction over a relatively short distance is known as wind shear. Captain Connor senses what's happening, and he says, you're going to lose it all of a sudden. He's referring to the plane's airspeed. Then Captain Connor says, there it is, in reference to the shifting wind and loss of airspeed. These changes to the wind, coupled with First Officer Price's decision to pull the throttles back to idle, causes Flight 191 to lose 44 knots of airspeed in 10 seconds. Flight 191's airspeed goes from 173 knots to 129 knots. Captain Connor says, push it up, way up, way up. And First Officer Price finally pushes the throttles back up. And this is phase two of Flight 191 dealing with the microburst. They're in the middle of this microburst, losing airspeed, dealing with a strong downdraft. 
At an altitude of 600 feet, the plane is back up to 140 knots, still 10 knots below its approach airspeed, but Flight 191 has maintained its glide slope. The third and final phase of Flight 191 flying through the microburst is unfortunately what puts the flight in an unrecoverable position. As Flight 191 tries to fly out of the microburst, in one second, the vertical wind shifted from a 40 feet per second downdraft to a 20 feet per second updraft. In the same second, the plane was hit with tailwinds that caused the plane to lose 20 knots of airspeed and go from 140 knots to 120 knots. As if this wasn't enough, in this exact same second, a massive lateral wind hits the left side of the plane and causes the plane to roll to the right. The horizontal wind shear inside the microburst was at least 73 knots, according to the report. This is the moment where the plane is blasted by wind from three different directions. This is also when Captain Connor says, hold on to the son of a bitch. Flight 191 is just getting tossed around in the sky. First Officer Price pushes the throttles to maximum power, but now the plane is dealing with a very strong tailwind on the southern edge of the microburst. This tailwind is keeping air from being able to flow over the plane's wings in the manner it needs to generate lift. At 260 feet, the tailwind's too strong, the plane is stalling and falling out of the sky at a rate of 5,000 feet per minute. Only 33 seconds elapse between Flight 191 first experiencing headwind from the north end of the microburst to touching down on the ground. So that's generally the arc for a plane that's trying to land and enters a microburst. The plane encounters wind shear inside and surrounding the microburst. First, the plane encounters headwinds, which increases airspeed. Then the plane encounters tailwinds on the other side of the microburst, which disrupts the flow of air over the wings, causing decreased lift. Combine that with the downward flow of air from the microburst, and the plane's in deep trouble because it's close to the earth, can't generate the lift it needs with the thrust of the engines, so a plane ends up stalling. The NTSB released their aircraft accident report on Flight 191 on August 15, 1986. The report stated that the probable causes for the accident were the flight crew's decision to initiate and continue the approach into a cumulonimbus cloud which they observed to contain visible lightning. The lack of specific guidelines, procedures, and training for avoiding and escaping from low-altitude wind shear, and the lack of definitive real-time wind shear hazard information. This resulted in the aircraft's encounter at a low altitude with a microburst-induced severe wind shear from a rapidly developing thunderstorm located on the final approach course. The report was also critical of the DFW Department of Safety, saying that off-site emergency services were not contacted in a timely manner. Apparently it took more than 10 minutes before off-site emergency services were contacted about the crash. Some off-site emergency services showed up because they heard about the crash over the radio. Luckily, the on-airport emergency services were quickly on the scene to aid in the rescue effort and gave medical care to survivors with injuries. So how did the crash of Flight 191 make flying safer? The report made a number of safety recommendations due to the investigation of Flight 191. We always talk about on the podcast how these crashes of the past improve the safety of air travel in the current day. Well, I would say the main reason this crash jumped out to me as one we just had to cover was Flight 191 brought about significant advances in technology that improved the safety of commercial air travel. In the report, it's mentioned that from 1970 to 1986, there were 18 documented cases of planes that crashed due to wind shear as the cause of or a contributing factor in those crashes. Those crashes resulted in the loss of 575 lives. Authorities in the world of aviation had known for a long time that wind shear was dangerous and that pilots in cockpits of commercial planes lacked the technology to detect dangerous wind shear. It was just inevitable that another plane would crash due to wind shear and more lives would be lost unless this matter was finally addressed. So the crash of Flight 191 really represented the straw that broke the camel's back in regards to finally developing that technology to aid pilots in being able to detect deadly wind shear. The crash was widely publicized, and this prompted the FAA and NASA to team up and form the Airborne Wind Shear Detection and Avoidance Program in July of 1986. In the following eight years, researchers studied weather phenomena and sensor technologies. In 1988, the FAA mandated that by 1993, all commercial planes must have onboard wind shear detection systems. 
The NASA and FAA joint program modified a Boeing 737 with research equipment and intentionally flew into microbursts to gather information and develop their warning system. Thanks to eight years of research and development in 1994, airborne wind shear detection and alert systems were installed on all commercial planes. Now with this technology, when a microburst is ahead of or about to form ahead of an aircraft, it can be detected. On the navigation display unit in the cockpit, the location of the microburst is shown and an audio warning is heard. So the crash of Flight 191 led to the development of airborne wind shear detection and alert systems, and these systems are now on all commercial aircraft. The report also mentioned a few other items. Systems and training programs for pilots encountering low-level wind shear needed to be developed, enhanced, and implemented. Shoulder harnesses for flight attendant jump seats were discovered to be worn or improperly installed. So the report called for better inspection and guidance for maintenance to ensure that shoulder harnesses on jump seats were in better condition in the future. Lastly, the report recommended that emergency notifications to off-site services at DFW Airport needed to be improved in the future. In August 1988, about a year after this crash, another crash occurred at DFW, and all emergency services were notified within 21 minutes, which was substantially better than the 45 minutes it took to notify people for Flight 191. So that's how the crash of Flight 191 made flying safer today. So what did you think about the story of Flight 191, Tess? The NTSB report calls out the pilots for flying through a thunderstorm that they saw lightning out of. Is it fair to call this in case of pilot error? Do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, when you were telling that story, I just kept thinking of the flight crew as sailors battling a squall. Mm -hmm. It felt like there wasn't much they could do in that moment. They were just sort of fighting the elements. Um, I was curious about how much time elapsed between them seeing the lightning and actually flying into it. Do you know? I think not much. It seemed like seconds. I know it was 33 seconds from them touching the edge of the microburst for the first time to the plane being on the ground. As far as the lightning, I would say a minute or so, not a lot of time. Right. So would they have to ask permission from air traffic control before going around? Doing that? a go around? I yeah. think instinctually as a pilot, if you see something dangerous, you just react. You can obviously communicate to the tower what you're doing, but if you saw lightning and you know that you're headed towards that, you could have called a go around. So I guess that's their, that's the main criticism from NTSB is that these guys saw lightning coming from a cloud and just flew into it. Right. Well, that's understandable in a way. It seemed like the captain was alarmed by the lightning just from the conversation mm-hmm. that happened in the cockpit. And, and he didn't notice it right away. Yeah, that's one point I wanted to make is I feel like the captain was very careful from the report All the captain's colleagues say he was careful and responsible. Three times during the flight, he changed course. I mean, above New Orleans, once they're flying the holding pattern above Texarkana, another time on approach, he asked for permission to change his route. He said, I really don't want to go through rough stuff. And maybe this was the fourth time and he was like, felt under a time crunch or it just happened to be they noticed the lightning just seconds before they were entering the uh, cloud. So I think it's kind of a stretch to say the captain wasn't careful or was reckless. Yeah, if anything, he, he was super careful throughout. We have evidence for that. I totally agree. They also, in the, uh, in the cockpit voice recording, you can hear that they were under a time crunch. They were talking about how they had very little time to be on the ground in DFW before their next flight. So maybe that time crunch played some sort of factor in things. I also think it's human nature to see, you know, a plane in front of us 60 seconds ago was safe. The plane that was 120 seconds ahead of us just landed. So they're probably thinking, oh, it's probably not that bad. It's probably just tough rain. We got approved by the tower to make this approach. If it was super dangerous, the tower would have called us off and told us, you know, weather was bad. But they're telling us they give us approval to keep our approach going. Yeah, right. It really struck me how fast it all happened. It seemed like they crashed and like 30 seconds. Yeah, I think it was pretty much a normal flight into the last 33 seconds. The last yeah. 33 seconds it went down and they hit this microburst when they were less than a thousand feet off the ground. So they had no time to recover. Yeah. It's not like Air France 447 where the plane started stalling at 35,000 feet. They mm. started stalling here basically at like 600 feet, which just gives them no time to figure out the problem. In the report, there was a mention of how the uh, there was an employee that was supposed to be monitoring the weather screen on the ground at DFW, and he was on break at the time of the crash. Wow, so that could have been part of the reason why that 
occurred. Yeah. Down, yeah. If he had seen the weather was bad, he could have radioed and said, this is unsafe. Your approach is unsafe. It really comes down to the lesson we that, that we learned from Flight 191 is that planes didn't have the technology to detect these kinds of things. And this is a problem. This has caused crashes in the past and now crashes in the future won't happen because planes have the technology to detect wind shear, dangerous wind shear ahead of them. Uh, Man, I'm so glad that that technology was developed because of this. I feel very comforted by by that fact. One thing I keep hearing again and again in interviews that I read or watch on television in regards to aviation is that pilots are only as good as their training and equipment allow them to be. Seems pretty evident from the story that these guys just didn't have the technology on the plane to, to detect what was in front of them. Totally. Yeah. I was really momentarily um, optimistic when you said that the plane crashed on a field. I was thinking, okay, yeah. maybe this is, maybe this will be all right. Maybe they'll just crash land on a field and it'll be, you know, a stroke of good luck that yeah. they landed on this open field, but that highway really not the highway and the water tanks is what they ran into. Yeah. If it was just nothing but concrete, you know, they probably could have rolled to a stop or stopped somehow. It wasn't like the plane was destined to blow up it just ran into a car and then ran into some water tanks so it's pretty sad um american flight 351 the plane that was too ahead of flight 191 landed safely that plane was actually on its second attempt to land during the story i told the first time it tried to land there was traffic on the runway and it had to make a missed approach the captain of that flight said that the weather had changed very quickly during his first approach, there were only scattered clouds and one thunderstorm located away from the airport. On the second approach for American 351, the captain said that the weather and winds were worse than during the first approach, but it still wasn't all that bad. The captain of Flight 351 said he didn't see any lightning, said there was a slight downwind at 2,500 feet, but wasn't even enough for him to report to anyone. He said there was no turbulence, just some temporary heavy rain around 1,000 feet. The plane landed at 6.04 p.m., two minutes before Flight 191 happened. So given this account, it seems like, unfortunately, the weather changed very, very rapidly for Flight 191. Rufus Lewis, the pilot of the Learjet directly in front of Flight 191, said the rain he flew through on August 2nd, 1985 on his approach to runway 17 left was the heaviest rain he's ever flown through in his entire piloting career before or after that date. So based upon what we know happened to Flight 191 and the Learjet pilot saying this was the heaviest rain he had ever flown through and the captain of American 351 saying, yes, there was heavy rain, but the winds weren't even that bad enough to report it, we can get a pretty clear picture of what happened on August 2nd, 1985, just after 6 p.m. north of DFW Airport. In a matter of 120 seconds, the weather went from a decent downpour to basically the gates of hell being opened up. I don't know if you've experienced weather like this in Boston where you grew up, but I'm from St. Louis and I can remember plenty of times when I was growing up just playing in the backyard. It would be a hot, humid summer day and suddenly it looks like a thunderstorm might be happening. So you run inside and within seconds you're staring out your window watching, you know, trash cans blow down the street. Did you ever have horrible weather like that? Uh, Nothing quite like that. I do remember being in uh, we would go sailing in the Caribbean sometimes when I was younger, and that was um, really the tropical storms that came through would come through so quickly. And yeah. It would be sunny, and then all of a sudden it would be storming, and then you'd have a rainbow five minutes later. Yeah, it was pretty intense. I remember St. Louis weather was insane. It would be perfectly nice out, and then the sky would turn green. It was like the world was coming to an end. I mean, we're talking Wizard of Oz, where the hell is Toto kind of vibes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like we've studied a number of crashes, or I've heard about a number of crashes that have happened in the 80s, you know, due to weather conditions. And we just don't have to worry about that in the same way, it seems. Mm -hmm. Um, Freak accidents happen less because we've identified the conditions that cause them and have figured out how to safeguard against them from happening. Yeah, this is a good example of that. Technology's advanced and we know, you know, Bad weather is going to bring down a plane. So we have developed technologies to detect that bad weather. And when we detect it, we say planes don't fly through that area. American Flight 539, the plane behind Flight 191, initiated a go around at 2,000 feet. There's a really interesting chart online comparing the wind speed and vectors between Flight 191 and American Flight 539. Air traffic control at the tower of DFW saw 
Flight 191 come out of the rain shaft, and they said that it looked very odd. The plane looked like it was level. Usually when a plane's approaching a runway, the nose is kind of up, and it looks like it's ready to land and performing the landing flare. Well, uh, the tower employee said that the plane looked like it was level, and he told it to go around, but it was too late, unfortunately. One passenger that survived the crash of Flight 191, Johnny Meyer, said in an interview that he showed up at the airport in Fort Lauderdale and found that he had been assigned a non-smoking seat towards the front of the plane. Meyer said, I told the ticket counter I smoke, and I wanted to be seated in the smoking area near a window. Subsequently, he was given a ticket for seat 41J at the back of the plane in the smoking section. Meyer said when the plane first encountered heavy turbulence that some fellow passengers behind him cried out, and he turned around to them and said, don't worry about it. We're all going to be safe and okay. Moments later, the plane plunged towards the earth and eventually crashed into the water tanks. Meyer said he kept switching between aisle seat to watch a movie and a window seat to smoke and stare out the window during the flight. Moments before the plane crashed, Meyer switched back to his window seat from the aisle seat. And after the plane crashed, the tail section broke apart from the plane and skidded to a stop. Meyer was okay, but he noticed that the aisle seat that he had been switching with only moments before was smashed to bits. Meyer said, if I had stayed there, I'd have been dead. That seat was just hanging loose wires. I guess God told me to get up and move. Later in the interview, Meyer said about his near-death experience, here's the key to the whole thing. We're all here for a short while, and some of us get a second chance. I'm grateful. It's not so much what you got as what you do with it. Wow. Well, it sounds like smoking doesn't always kill. Yeah, it was a good choice to go back to the back of the plane. And to sit by the window. Another survivor, John Moore, was seated towards the front of the plane. He was unhappy with his leg room, so during the middle of the flight, he wandered down to the smoking section and found a spacious row to himself, row 35. Everything in front of row 34 was completely incinerated, so the move saved his life. When the tail section stopped, Moore was hanging in his seat by his seatbelt, and he said to himself, I was in one of two places, heaven or earth. I knew it was earth, so I unbuckled my seatbelt and fell into the mud. Both survivors, Moore and Meyer, assisted in the rescue effort, fastening compresses for those that were bleeding and carrying away the wounded from the fire. In Decatur, Georgia, a funeral was held for First Officer Rudy Price. Over 400 people were in attendance, including 60 Delta Airline pilots. Rudy's wife, Dawn, spoke before the congregation and said, He loved you all. He loved this church. He loved the people here. I know he's alive and he's with us. Rudy, we're going to see you again. You made it. The occupant of the car, the 1971 Toyota Celica that was killed by Flight 191 on Highway 114, was 28-year-old William Mayberry. William Mayberry had just moved to the Dallas area and was looking for work before his wife and two children were going to join him from Vicksburg, Mississippi. He had just found a job as a mechanic at a Toyota dealership and was headed home to call his wife to tell her the good news. He died on that August 2nd, and it was his 28th birthday. Oh, that's really sad. Yes, it is. A memorial to the victims of Delta Airlines Flight 191 was unveiled in 2010 at Founders Plaza in DFW Airport. It's a three-foot granite memorial with a description of what occurred and a map where the crash took place. Well, I think that's going to do it for Flight 191. Tess, I have a few stories from the world of airline news. Would you like to hear it? I would, yes. On Saturday, March 21st, a passenger flying on Frontier Airlines Flight 536, a flight from Denver to Washington, D.C., deplaned once the flight arrived at Reagan-Washington National Airport in Virginia via the emergency slide. The passenger apparently had been disruptive throughout the flight, trying to open a plane door mid-flight. Once the flight arrived at its gate, the unruly passenger successfully opened a plane door, activating the emergency slide, and slid down onto the airfield. Passenger was promptly picked up by airport authorities, police, and cited. Tess, could you ever see yourself engaging in a similar activity? <laughs> Maybe just jumping out of your seat quickly and taking the emergency slide instead of patiently waiting to exit the plane via the jetway? <laughs> if I was sitting next to you, maybe, Michael. Yeah, you probably want to get away from me pretty quickly. Yeah. I think uh, maybe the passenger just really hated Reagan National Airport. I've never been there, but it can't be that bad, right? I mean, I don't know, but I just, I know that it's not a laughing matter. I just find this flair for drama to be very amusing. Yeah, I think we could all use a little amusement in our life these days. This incident reminded me a lot of that story from a few years ago where the JetBlue attendant got on the PA and said, I've been in this business 20 years. That's it. I'm done. And apparently he stole two beers from the beverage cart, popped the emergency chute and exited the plane, (laughs) had the cold beer on the tarmac. Must have been a pretty rough flight. I mean, 
probably pretty hard to get a job after that too. Can you imagine this guy's manager at JetBlue getting a call asking for advice about hiring him? And it's like, what do you think about Steve? Should we hire him? And yeah. the reply would be, well, he's known to commit a felony while quitting, but he, <laughs> you might get 20 good years out of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that might be worth it. If you hired somebody and you're like, He'll work for you for 20 years, do a good job, but he quits dramatically after that. Right. Yeah. Nowadays, the turnaround's like two years. So 20 sounds pretty good to me. Totally. On Friday, March 20th, American Airlines announced for the first time in 35 years, they will be flying cargo-only flights to help move sorely needed supplies during the coronavirus pandemic. The last cargo-only American Airlines flight flew in 1984. On March 20th, American Airlines flew a cargo-only flight from DFW in Texas, the airport we just were talking about, to Frankfurt, Germany. The flight carried medical supplies, mail for U.S. military members, telecommunications equipment, and other supplies. American Airlines employee Ken Gerald stated, The flights represent much-needed aid for the world and hope for our team. Our team members across the airline are ready and willing to do what it takes to make sure people have the things they need during these unprecedented times. Tess, what do you think about American Airlines converting some of their planes to cargo-only flights? I think it's great. I think it's a public service, and I think that, you know, they're not empty planes. There are still pilots inside of them and flight mm-hmm. crew and people ch- make, making sure the planes are flying properly. So uh, it's it's those people are really risking their safety to get people the goods that they need. So I commend yeah. them for that. I thought it was a good story as well. I feel like businesses need to adapt right now. Maybe there's certain products we don't need right now and certain products we really need. So I hope the businesses out there that are making products that aren't really selling that well might get uh, busy making things that we really need, whether that's like hand sanitizer or medical supplies or food. Totally. Yeah. I mean, um, I just read a story that Dyson is... um working on a new ventilator. Tesla has said that they're going to make ventilators. Yeah. So that seems to be a, a good positive trend that's yeah. happening right now. It's like a war effort where you have to change factories to combat the war, combat the enemy. A small airline that services the Yukon territory, Air North, put out a statement essentially saying the small airline is doing well and will be fine during this turbulent time for airlines globally. Air North CEO Joe Sparling said in a statement, we're in this together. Air North, Yukon's airline, is well-equipped to handle the challenges ahead. I'm proud to say that we have a dedicated team, a healthy balance sheet, and are prepared to operate on a smaller scale until demand returns. Combined with the support we receive from Yukoners, we have the tools we need to navigate this turbulence together. Thank you for your interest and questions. We will continue to look out for each other, stay healthy, and we'll share the sky again soon. At a time when all other airlines are panicking and looking for a bailout, Air North, with its nine-plane fleet, are sounding confident and ready for business. Tess, do you find Air North's attitude to be refreshing and hopeful? Well, sure, yeah. It sounds like smaller is better in these times. Yeah, panicking's never the answer. Life's going to go on. I'm sure it's much easier having a fleet of nine planes than 1,300 planes. Oh, yeah, planes. absolutely. They're probably like, well, we're never going to get the opportunity to be top dogs again, so we might as well <laughs> announce yeah. ourselves to the world and let everyone know we're doing well. Still, yeah. I'm happy that the small mom-and-pop airline can take care of themselves. Definitely. Lastly, Frontier Airlines announced a new policy for passengers looking to cancel their flights between the dates of March 22nd and June 17th. Not only will the airline give you a credit for the value of your ticket, they'll add $50 to that credit. So if you booked a $200 ticket on Frontier and you cancel, you get a $250 credit to use by the end of 2020. The airline is essentially paying customers an extra 50 bucks to rebook tickets. What do you think about that, Tess? Well, is it too late for me to buy a ticket so I can try and refund it and get an extra 50 bucks? Yeah, maybe they're trying to like boost sales. Maybe they're like, people are going to be scared to travel in 2020, so let's just mm. give them an extra reason to get out there. Yeah, it's a promotion. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. Apparently, episode 19 is in the books. Thanks to uh, Tess Andrade for joining us. Do you have anything you want to say to the people before we take off? Oh, just thank you so much for having me, Michael. And thanks for all the hard work you do and for being just such a great guy. Thank you for uh, all your hard work. Uh, the people love hearing from you. And oh, thank I'm you. happy that you're a permanent source on the podcast. Thanks to all our Patreon members. You guys are great. I feel like in life, somebody once said to me, you really vote with your dollar. So if you like McDonald's and you keep on going to McDonald's and you give them your money, McDonald's is just going to continue to exist. If you want uh, PCPC to continue to exist, vote with your dollar. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. 
Go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Um, you get previews. We have some cool merch that we came up with. Check out www.planecrashpod.com. That's the cool website that uh, Tess built. And uh, you can get our merch there. Don't get any of that knockoff merch. Yeah, we just only buy the official stuff, people, because there's a lot of knockoffs floating around, and we want you to get the real stuff. Yeah, you can hang out with us on Twitter, and we still love reviews. I know we didn't talk about reviews today, but I no, thought you guys, you guys could use a uh, episode off where I don't beg you to write a review. But I love you guys. It's so special that we get to hang out. I feel like we get to hang out during these periods of time, and I know it's a rough patch that we're going through. I know it's a lot of pain that a lot of people are in, and I know it's scary, but at least we get to look forward to hanging out with you guys and interacting with you. And I hope you're all taking care of yourselves and taking care of people around you that need help and just staying strong, staying brave and staying inside, working on your brain, exercising, and we're going to, you know, survive this in the future. We're going to look back on this and we're going to think that we tackled that moment in time and we did it as a uh, group. We did it together and things are going to be okay. We'll just keep the faith and we'll have a new episode for you guys soon. Um, thanks for hanging out and listening and uh, I love you guys and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.